four verses, all right? Uh, not too much more, so don't, don't get too crazy. But we're looking at verses 5 to 13 in this new section. If you don't have it, we've got new booklets in the back for you. Uh, but this is going to be covering the days of Noah, part 2, uh, as we're looking at this. I want to read for us verses 5 to 13 tonight. This is sort of the next section in this uh, account of what God is doing. And as we remember, all throughout this scripture from Genesis to Revelation, God is revealing who He is, what He's like, what He has done, what He's doing, what He's going to do, and we are now to respond by faith. This is exactly what we see, the model of Noah's life, that he responds by faith, he receives grace, he, and this revealing of what God is doing, he's showing. Now God is going to be showing sort of these other parts of His attributes that the rest of the world hasn't quite gotten to see in full-fledged yet. They've experienced mercy upon mercy, patience upon patience, love upon love, now they're getting ready to experience wrath and judgment upon wrath and judgment. We've got to understand that all of these things that God is, He is completely and perfectly. He does not waver. He, he is these things all the time because it is His very nature and essence. And what we find here is you and I, and, and certainly the lost world would definitely struggle with this. You come to chapter 6 and you go, there was just a little bit of sexual sin. There was some violence in the world. How could God kill millions, and I would even argue billions of people, in an instant? How could He be good and do that? The issue is not God's goodness. As a matter of fact, it was His goodness that allowed them to even live this long in their sin. We've got to understand that. The issue is how sinful sin is. How overwhelming it is in this fallen world, in our fallen natures, and that in the fallen nature of man, all he wants to do is rebel against God. Even the most religious, all it is, is rebellion caked on with some, some good-looking moral makeup. But it's nothing before God. What we find is that God, ultimately, though He brings judgment and justice, what tags right alongside justice and judgment is His grace and His mercy yet still. The fact, and here's, here's what we've got to understand, the fact that Noah and his wife and his three boys and their three wives, eight people are allowed to live, the fact that even eight people are allowed to live is God's grace. Eight people didn't deserve to live. You say, well, wasn't He just and perfect? We'll get into that. God owed no man anything because Noah was not sinless. There has no one been born except Jesus Christ Himself that has ever been sinless. And that's why every portion of Scripture, as we see what God is doing, it is leading us back to, as Brother Tony talked about tonight, thank God for the cross. Because it's leading us to God's only plan of eternal redemption and reconciliation, so that we can come into His presence. Let's read verses 5-13 to tonight. It says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was, notice this, only evil continually. Now we'll get into that. Verse number 6, and I know there's going to be questions with this one. We're going to answer that too. And it repented the Lord that He had made man on the earth. And here's the key to understand that repented part. 
and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and walked in his generations and uh, and was perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. This is a heavy passage. This is leading up to God sending forth the worldwide flood, the deluge of which is going to bring about absolute judgment, and it will crush and destroy the lives of, I believe, millions, even to the billions. Now, what we've got to understand is every act of God's judgment and justice is just and right. God never does anything that is not right, nor does He ever do anything that is not good. You say, how could it be good? This is a wonderful thing because God is expressing who He is and He is cleansing His world and reproving it of sin. And this is a picture of only a fraction of what is to come in the days ahead. God is going to once more reprove His creation to purify it. In the coming days, it will be with fire. It will not be with the flood. And what we've got to understand is how many of us have heard of the Scripture that talks about, as in the days of Noah, so shall it be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus' second coming here. Now, how many of y'all have ever wondered, are we in the days of Noah? Anybody ever wondered that? All right, a few of you guys have. The rest of you, you might start wondering tonight. (laughs) When we talk about the days of Noah, I want us to understand, first of all, this. When we say the phrase, the last days, are we living in the last days? Yes. Was the Apostle Paul living in the last days? Yes. Because you know how long the last days have been going on? Since Jesus ascended. Right? Since the very Gospel took place, the death, burial, resurrection, and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, the promise of the angels looking down and saying, you men of Galilee, why are you looking up here in the east? The same Jesus is going to come to the same place in like manner. And you're going to see this. It's going to come. Now what is that when Jesus steps foot on that same mountaintop? Is that the rapture? No. That's the second coming. Now, we've got to understand here, unfortunately, and I will say this, and I know, and I don't want to, to ruffle too many chicken feathers tonight, or, or uh, okay, but, but in our independent Baptist world for far too long, we have not distinguished the difference between the rapture and the second coming. And because of that, we're all sorts of confused. What does it mean, the second coming? I thought that was the rapture. The rapture is the calling away, the withdrawing of. God's church. God's people. Now, who are God's people? They are the ones who have the indwelling Spirit of God, which is the one that reproves. He is the real salt and light of the world, not necessarily you and I. It's because the Lord Himself indwells us now as believers that we get to be salt and light. So what's going to happen with the rapture? It's not just Him protecting us from the great day of tribulation, but it is a withdrawing away from His restraining power and the earth will one day go back as it was in the days of Noah. So are we in the days of Noah today? 
Not yet. We're getting there. I believe that we are seeing the early birth pains, if you will. But I believe that the days of Noah, like Matthew 24 is discussing, is going to be that great day of tribulation because there will be no more restraining power of the Holy Spirit of God. What I mean by that is it means that man in his sinfulness and in a sinful condition and a fallen condition and a fallen world, literally, will just do nothing but what we find in Genesis 6. What do we find them doing in Genesis 6? That his heart was only. What does only mean? Only. That's right. Evil. Only evil. How often? Once in a while? Continually. Now, I believe that we're approaching it. But we're not quite there yet. And I believe the, what, what is keeping it from getting to that place? What's the next event to get it to that place? It's the restraining power of the Spirit of God to be withdrawn. And with that, what else is withdrawn? The people of God Himself, the church. That's what's going to separate. Now, until then, what are we living in? The last days where there will be a falling away. What's the falling away? Is that the lost world? I don't believe so. The falling away is what we find in our churches today, in our homes today. You can't fall if you're already fallen. Does that make sense? If you're in your fallen condition, still your lost condition, you can't fall any further than that. You're already fallen. The idea is that there is going to be a continual downgrade spiritually in this world, which certainly makes it a whole lot easier for an antichrist to come into the world and say, I've got all your problems solved, and then for about three and a half years later to sit down and say, by the way, I'm God, worship me, and if you don't, I'll kill you. That's what's coming down the pipe. So we've got to understand these things. Why? We're in Genesis 6. It's because the Bible connects and God tells us the ending in the beginning. Right? Now, as we get in here tonight, first of all, we want to understand in verses 5 through 7, we see man's wickedness. Now, it is difficult enough for me as a pastor to understand how sinful I am, let alone to understand the depths of sin that it was when they were only thinking evil and acting in evil continuously. I'd like to think I'm not quite there, right? I'd like to think that you're not there. You'd like to think you're not there. Now, for them, they were literally at the point where it was only evil continually. It had become their way of life. And it did not take long, mind you. It says in verse 5, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Selhammer writes, these verses serve as the introduction to the flood story. They link the story with the previous narratives and provide the central themes of the narrative that follows. Throughout the story, there are numerous ties to the creation account in Genesis 1. The intent is apparently to depict the great flood as a reversal of God's work of creation. In chapter 1, God prepared the good land for the man. Remember, everything that was made before mankind was made for mankind to rule over and to enjoy with God forever. But it was sin that forced man to no longer get to enjoy creation as he was designed to, nor get to enjoy the presence of God as he was designed to. That's the whole major theme of what the fall does. It takes what God said was good and then very good and then makes it very bad. It makes it the opposite of what it was designed to be for us. Now, in this, he continues, he says, in the account of the flood, God takes back the good land because humankind acted corruptly and did not walk in God's way. The central themes introduced in these opening verses 
our divine judgment and God's gracious salvation. Notice that. I believe the author of that commentary is right. Where you find judgment and justice, you also find grace. Well, what is the cross than anything else but God's divine justice being poured out, but grace being bestowed as well? We find the two go hand in hand. God's judgment is not necessarily just done out of wrath or anger that you and I would think of. God judges by His grace. All that God does is by His grace. It is undeserved that we would even get to see the judgment of God, that it would show us who He is. Without seeing God's judgment, we can't understand those parts about Him. We can't understand the depths of sin. And we must understand both. Now, if we remember back, we've kind of had these sort of three Ps, if you will, that sort of map out Genesis, but as well the rest of Scripture, I believe. One, God's promise. That's His Word, right? This is what He has said, what He has spoken. God's provision. This is His work. This is what He has designed. This is what He has provided for us. Uh, then we have His presence. This is what we were designed to live in. We, we equate it to His will. It is God's will that we would abide and live in His presence. But because of the fall, we are driven away from His presence. Therefore, it is by His Word and His work that we can even be saved to then return back to His presence. That's the will of God. Now, if we remember back to Genesis chapter 1, after every single day, what did God say as He looked back at it? It is good. What does He say after mankind is created and He looks back at everything? This is very good. Now, why does He say this? Because it was very good. But the fall, man's sinful and willful rebellion there in the garden, and your and mine, by the way, sinful and willful rebellion against God. It rejects God's promise. It rejects His Word. Every time that you and I sin, we are saying no to God's Word. That's the, that's the very root of sin. You could argue pride, that sort of thing, but pride itself is a rejection of, of God's Word because we're called in God's Word to do the opposite of that. If we know God's Word, and if we know God, we can't, we can't act prideful. Because we are immediately humbled when we know who God is, when we see Him as revealed in His Word. It also rejects His provision. God had provided all of that creation for Adam and Eve to enjoy. How long were they meant to enjoy it? I believe forever. However, what you and I see is that God provides for us things far greater than what we can imagine, but we can't enjoy them because of sin, rebellion, rejection. And I would say for the Christian today, the reason why we don't enjoy many things that God gives to us is the very same principle. It's a lack of faith, a lack of trust. And then sin itself, and in the fall of man, it rejects the presence of God because it no longer wants the presence of God. When the presence of God is not enough for mankind, he's missed out on what the will of God is. And the same is said for the Christian. We've got to see how these things correlate and come together. Now, in creation, God sees His creation and that it is good, Genesis 1.31. But in catastrophe, God sees His creation that is totally corrupt, Genesis 6.5. He looks and He sees that the wickedness is great in the earth. Now, does it mean like old Tony the Tiger, great? No, no, no. This is the idea. It is to the max. It is overflowing with sin. It's everywhere. This, it would be, 
It would be like this. You take one nice white wall here in this room, right? And you take five five-gallon buckets of black paint and just start chucking it like that on the white wall. It's going to be marred pretty quick, isn't it? It's going to be ugly. It's going to change colors. And then we're going to have a, a, a fight over the color of, not the carpet, but the color of the wall. We don't want that. But here's what we see, though. Here's what had happened with sin. It had gone everywhere, and there was nothing that anyone could do to make it disappear. No man, no matter how righteous, no matter how good, no matter how kind, no matter how moral, can ever erase the stain of sin. This is why we find God's provision there in the garden so wonderful because the only thing that could take away their sin was His own sacrifice. The sacrifice of innocence. This is why the Bible is pointing us always to Christ. Pointing us always to the cross where we find God's promise, provision, and presence wrapped up in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice this though. You often hear God can't look at sin. We hear that. It says God saw the wickedness. The Proverbs 15.3 tell us the eyes of the Lord are in every place. You don't have to be much of a scholar to understand that every place means every place, don't you? Is there anything or anywhere that you can go that you could hide and God's eyes would not see you? No. You can hide under the pew. You can dig a hole to China. You can hide under a rock. And there is no place. Matter of fact, It's funny, you read in the Bible about people who literally tried to hide from God and He still found them at the bottom of the ocean and the bottom of the belly of a whale and still coughed them up onto a beach to do His work. Right? None escaped the eye of the Lord. He says then in Proverbs 15.3, though, notice this. That's the first portion. The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. Both. You know why? Only God can understand both. Only God can see it outside of a a sinful nature like you and I. You and I, when we see good and evil, we see it yet still with tainted vision because of our sinful condition. What God calls evil, you and I are able to go, well, you know, it's not that bad because it's not as bad as this. But God just says it's bad. It's evil. And you and I go what God calls good, something like holy living or pure living, undefiled living, walking with Him sort of living. And we go, well, that sounds a little pharisaical to me. It sounds a little legalistic. No. This is what God calls good and evil. And God sees Him perfectly and completely. You see, what about God can't look at sin? And a lot of people would go, and the reason why I bring this up is because this is a common misnomer. People would go to Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Habakkuk is uh, praying to the Lord. He says, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord? Well, isn't he? Of course he is. He says, My God, mine holy one, we shall not die, O Lord. Thou hast ordained them for judgment, and, O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Thou art of pure eyes, and to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Did Habakkuk not read Proverbs? And look at this. He says, Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? 
Many folks would quote the first portion of verse 13 and say God can't look at evil. But if you look at the rest of verse 13 and the chapter of Habakkuk that starts off the whole thing, Habakkuk, much like Job, is asking God in his holy character to intervene swiftly in the face of injustice. He's going, God, how long can you continuously look at the injustice in the world and be okay with it and do nothing and not act upon it? Let's be honest. How many of us have gotten to such a place where we see atrocities like that? When's the last time we got so much where, Lord, how many more babies? How much more sin? How many more deaths? How many more wars? We've got to understand, though, God sees. And as the Bible tells us, God will not be mocked. And what we find in Genesis 6 is in God's holy and righteous character, He sees, as Proverbs tells us, the evil and the good. Nothing is hidden from Him. The very motives of the heart of every man, by the way, lost or saved, are known by God Himself, and He will only let it go for so long. One of the most wonderful things that you and I can think about, one of the most beautiful doctrines of God, mind you, is the very justice and wrath of God. You say, that's not very, I mean, it's not very encouraging for a Bible study. It is encouraging. You know why? If God did not have wrath and justice and pour out His wrath and justice righteously and lovingly and graciously as He does, He wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be worth serving. And furthermore, what it shows us is that God intends to bring about justice. Why? To bring about something greater. This is what's going to happen here in Genesis. It's what's going to happen... And what Revelation discusses and throughout the Bible discusses in the end times, the last of last days, where God will say, no more, and sin and death itself shall be gone. And the Bible talks about in the new heavens and new earth, in the new city of Jerusalem, in Revelation 21 and 22, wherein righteousness dwells, where God dwells with His people, right? And He shall be our God and we shall be His people, that there shall be no more curse. What's the curse? It is the fallen nature. It is sin itself. But we don't get to Revelation 22 without Revelation 19. Revelation 19, Jesus Himself comes back and destroys enemies. And furthermore, we don't have Revelation 21 and 22 without chapter 20 after the Millennial Kingdom that God allows. Notice that God allow Satan to be let loose for a season. One more act of rebellion, and God swiftly puts it down. That's something that we should praise God for. Because God is righteous and just and will only allow sin to go so far and so long. And when we find this, God saw the wickedness of man. It was very great in the earth. Sorensen writes, the word translated as wickedness, the word uh, ra, is one of the basic words for sin in the Old Testament, having the most basic sense of evil. It is the opposite of good. It is the absence of good. It is the rejection of good. It is the rebellion against good. Sin is not just going and making a little accident or a mistake or a goof up. It is an act of of treason against God's Word, God's law, God's very nature and character. Mankind had missed out on that. 
In his sin, he become blinded to sin. And notice this, the more that you live in sin, the less you care about it, the less you notice it, the less it bothers you. Because sin feels good. We like sin. And we sin because we like it. Plain and simple. And this is where they were. They loved sin. They loved the pleasures of the flesh. They loved the, the lust of the flesh. Lust the eyes and the pride of life. And they had gone further and further into their sin. Mankind in His creation was a part of God's decree that His creation was very good. But sin takes the order of God and rebels against it. Sin goes, oh, you made me to be good and to dwell with you and to live in your presence? I don't want that. Sin doesn't want the presence of God. Sin doesn't want the provision of God. Sin doesn't want the promise of God. It is a rejection of God Himself. Every sin. Every single sin. Now what's the great evil here? What's the great wickedness? The greatest evil in the world is sin itself. Because every sin is an act of evil against a good God. We can never question why God would do the flood or later on what's going to happen in the future if we understand the depths of Genesis 3. God makes this covenant with man. He puts him in a perfect place. He gives literally His very presence to dwell with them. He gives them every good fruit that there is. He gives them a job to do. And even though that they could work all day and probably not get tired, He still gives them a Sabbath day of rest. He'd given them everything that man needed. Everything that man needed to know God and to walk with God, to enjoy God and to enjoy His creation. But one sin, one sin, says I don't want anything to do with that. What we really find here is when God saw the wickedness of man was very great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart were, uh, was only evil continually, what we're seeing in verse 5 is that God looks down at His creation that is supposed to know Him, love Him, dwell with Him, because that's what they were designed to do. And instead, they, much like in Revelation, they look up and they curse the Lamb. They grit their teeth. They shake their fists. They wag their tongues. Much like they did to Jesus on the cross. Because that's what sin does at its very nature. Wicked hands commit wicked deeds because of wicked hearts and minds. There is no part of our human life unaffected by sin. However, there is also no moment of our life not affected by God's grace. Though sin abounds, His grace much more abounds. As we sing, uh, his, our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. And it's a good thing because my sins are many. And the sins of this world were many. You say, well, where's God's mercy in it? Well, it's in verse 8. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It's in verse 9. Noah was just and perfect in his generation. Noah walked with God. The fact that anyone could walk with God at this point in time in human history, let alone today in 2023, is God's grace and mercy. See, the problem is not only what man does. Even his thoughts are evil. 
Sin is both extensive and intensive. It's overwhelming. It's all-consuming. Every part of fallen man loves sin. There is no part of a fallen, lost soul that has an ounce of love for God. We'd like to think they do. And they'd like to say they do. Because I was one that did. And you probably were too. But I loved my sin. And I was a good kid. You might have been a good kid. I knew the Bible verses. I, I, I knew the stories. I did all the good things. Did all the right things. But in doing all the right things, with the wrong motivation, with a prideful, wicked, sinful, pharisaical little heart that I had, I was really expressing my, not love for God, but rejection of God because I was my own God. I didn't need God because I was good. I didn't need the Jesus that I knew all about because I am good. I know all about these things. Therefore, that's why we've got to understand the depths of sin. This is why when we talk about lost souls, we've got to understand we get angry at times. How many of y'all, I've been angry because people just, they're lost and just don't get it. They want to argue with you and everything else. Makes you irritated. You know what makes you irritated? Because you're in your flesh. That's why. If we were in the Spirit, we would, we would have our hearts broken because they're blinded by this. What we see in verse 5 is that all that they know is sin. They know nothing else. They don't know the good of the land. They've never experienced the good of the land. They don't know the presence of God. They've never experienced it, nor do they even want it. They, they don't know the provision of God because they reject His provision. He's pouring out His mercy daily to them while they live in their sin, and all the while they reject it and don't even know it. They reject His Word, living for themselves. All the while, ignorance is bliss. And they are happy to sin. Every single sinner is happy to stay in their sin. Now, that shows us a couple things. One, how terrible and overwhelming and crushing the weight of sin is in the life of every unbeliever, including how you and I were. But what it truly shows us much more than that is that God's grace goes so deep that God in His infinite wisdom, able to see the evil and the good and the wickedness of our hearts, stoops down the King of glory into our world to pull us out of the gutter. Whether that gutter was drunkenness or morality or pharisaicalness or pride or whatever it might have been, that's the depth. The depth of sin seems to never end, but it's truly His grace and His mercy that never ends. And that's what we find in chapter 6. Now as we continue on here, I only got 10 minutes, that's crazy. Alright. Kidner says this, the term imagination, yes sir, or probably pronounced more accurately with some more phlegm and you got Hebrew. That's, if you ever come to a Hebrew word, you add some phlegm, you say it quickly, you're going to sound just like you know what you're talking about, alright? 
Matter of fact, let's all do that. Does that sound okay? I know it's getting heavy in here tonight. Let's all say, yes, sure. All right, everybody, one, two, three. Yes, sure. Look at you guys. You guys are Hebrew scholars out there. It is closer to action uh, than the English suggests. It is derived from the potter's verb to form, which is what we see in chapter 2, verse 7. How God formed man. It implies design or purpose. Later, Judaism made it a technical term for each of the twin impulses towards good and evil, which it considers to coexist in man. But the New Testament is the true exponent of the passage, finding no good thing in our fallen nature, Romans 7.18, where Paul says, In my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Now, what do you think Paul means there? He means that in my flesh there is not one single good thing. In a man's fallen condition without Christ, there is not one molecule in his body that has an ounce of good to it. Not one. Even the sweetest of people who know church and do church, sit in church, serve church, it don't matter if they make the best casserole. It don't matter if they sit up tables and chairs. It don't matter if they're the biggest giver. There's nothing good in the flesh. But what does that tell me, though, if I am saved? There's still nothing good in my flesh. The only thing good i got going for me is that now Christ, who has saved me now and dwells in my life by the Holy Spirit and wants to use this flesh for His good, for His glory. And only God can take something that is so rotten and vile and make it an empty vessel that is fit to be filled, that is fit to be used. Phillips writes, Man, men fashioned wicked philosophies. They formed obscene artifacts. They eagerly espoused filthy causes. They made fashionable, vile sins. They poured society into their mold. Boy, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Now, while we might not be yet quite in the days of Noah, yet we're getting pretty close, ain't we? As we find the world is getting closer and closer to the day, and I believe the day that it comes will be that day of withdrawing from the church, and then mankind will be in his reprobate state, left to his sin, and will willfully, by the way, go to where every thought he thinks is wicked, perverse, and vile. This is what the days of Noah looked like. This was the days of Noah. The human, sinful, fleshly nature is always corrupt, always rebellious. As one author puts it, in other words, the thought structure of the human race had deteriorated to the place where it was only evil continually. If sexual immorality is implied in verse 4, which I believe that it is, the idea is that human civilization had become preoccupied with sexual perversity and sensuality of all kinds in viewing present moral conditions. It is noteworthy what Jesus said, and as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. This is as far as we're going to make tonight. We're going to see later on in this chapter that the earth is going to be full. Overflowing is the idea with violence. I want to tell you two things God can't stand. That God will one day have His fill of in this world. Sexual perversion and violence. And much of the time when you find sexual perversion, you find violence. 
Years ago, one of the first, and probably the first one that everyone really knew about that caught the world's attention, not just America's attention, but the world's attention, was Columbine. Those young boys who committed those atrocities on that day, y'all, how many of y'all remember that day watching it? I was far too young. I, might not, I don't even know if I was even alive. Nevertheless, you know what happened on that day? Two young men committed, would you call, acts of violence? Outrageous violence even? Up to that point, unheard of violence even? It hadn't really happened that way before. And it changed the world. Changed our schools, changed families, it changed everything. And it's only gotten worse it seems, hasn't it? But when you dove deeper into the lives of those two boys, one, they rejected God. They hated God. They cursed God. And as well, and here's, here's, here's what happens. They were full and filled with pornography. The reason why I bring that up tonight is because we're living in a world that is obsessed with sexuality. And we're living in a world that is obsessed with violence. I don't self-identify, if you will, as some hardcore independent, fundamental, all these different things. I am a Baptist. I am. Many of these older men who in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s were preaching against television and video games, they're not that wrong, are they now? Now, I'm not telling you to go home, throw out your TV, okay? What What I am telling you is this, though. As the Lord said, if it caused you to stumble, cut it off, right? We've got to understand what we, what we have done now as a society for decades, my entire lifetime nearly, is that we have force-fed our children sexuality from an incredibly young age and force-fed them violence through everything that they see on TV, video games. And I was one who played violent video games and watched cops. I loved war movies, right? You wonder, how'd you turn out? So I don't know. I just don't know. God's grace, right? But we, my generation has been fed these things, and we wonder why we're so perverse. Now, we talk about these younger generations, how perverse they are sexually, how perverse they are with violence. Who's the perverse ones? the ones that were doing it or the ones that allowed them to do it. We made the video games. We made the television programs. And we let the kids sit in front of it. We gave them the cell phones. We gave them the social media. We started pretending that it's cute for eight and nine-year-olds to have boyfriends and girlfriends. That stuff is sick. It's perverse. And it's not much different than the perverses that you have in the world of some old creeper on Dateline. We, we're giving the same mentality to treat an eight and a nine-year-old as a sexual object or creature by letting them have boyfriends or girlfriends. That's hogwash. They're not designed for that. It is destroying their minds, destroying their hearts, and this is what had happened in the days of Noah. And we think we're bad now. And how many of y'all would say it's bad now? I know I would. You would. We got kids, grandkids and stuff that are growing up and you're going, 
What in the world? How do we protect them? Here's the reality. It's going to get worse. This is a drop in the bucket. We are seeing more and more today the sexual perversion is beyond a culture that had a sexual revolution 40, 50 years ago. It is now at the point where we are having people who are trying to create laws and protections for people who are attracted to children and trying to make it normal. And this is happening. We've got to understand, how could, how could it be? Sin. If we start seeing these things around us, it had better change us. Because we've got to understand that there are generations that are going to be closer and closer to only knowing wickedness and the thoughts of their heart and imagination, only being evil, only being perverted with sexuality and violence. And mind you, you follow history. Every single nation, civilization, or empire, when they fell, there were two things that caused them to fall. Sexual perversion and violence. And much the two coming together. Everyone. You want to just take Babel, right? Happens there. Happens in Noah's day. It happens with the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Persians, the Romans. It's happening all throughout the world. And it's happening here. We've got to see this. Because there is a day where God's going to look down and go, that's it. There will be millions and billions more who will die without Christ. And we like to fuss and fight and care far too much about the world than the eternal things of God. And all the while you and I, while the world around us is full of, I know I'm just past, while the world is full of sexual perversion and violence, you and I will do this. One, ignore it. Two, get angry. Or three, We respond as God did. Grieved in His heart. We'll get into that next week. The fact that sin no longer grieves us as Christians shows us where we're at. What shows us how close we are to the days of Noah is not so much the perversion around us. That's always been. And it's going to get worse and worse. Jesus said it would. Paul said it would. The Bible said it would. God said it would. What shows us how close I believe we are is how little the church cares. How little we are affected by our own sin. When's the last time we grieved our own sin, let alone got angry at somebody else? 
Do I get angry at the sin of the world? I do. But I ought to be grieved. The only one that has a right to be angry at sin is God. Because only God is just. Only God is righteous. And only God will bring about justice. So tonight as we bring this to a close, we'll get into verse 6 and on down the line later on. We ask our hearts tonight, do we grieve sin? Are we able to even see the world around us and discern the times? Jesus told the Pharisees, He said, you know the weather changing, you know the seasons, and I'm right here, you will see me. We'll either in these days pretend it's not there or pretend it's not that bad. We'll get real angry and shout all about it. Or we'll be grieved and graciously call this world as Noah is going to do to repentance and faith in the Gospel of Christ. Without that, there is no hope. Let's pray. Lord, we love You. We thank You for this night. God, we're grateful for Your Word. God, we pray that Your Word would first cleanse us of our own sin. God, that we would grieve our own sin. God, we see the perverseness and the wickedness all around us, and God, it is nothing compared to what Noah saw in his day. God, I pray that we would see these things around us, and Lord, that we would have real burdens for lost people, that we would have a burden to pray, a burden to see things as You see them, and ultimately, God, to see You as You have designed us to see You, and that it would lead us to trust You. Lord, these are dark days, but You know that. You're not surprised by it. Matter of fact, You told us it was going to happen. But God, while we're here, help us to be the salt and the light that You've called us to be. To be unashamed of the Gospel of Christ. To be willing, like Noah in his day, to stand for what is right, what is just. To, by Your grace, simply trust You that we might be used of You in these evil days. Lord, that we might, as Your Scripture tells us, having done all, to stand. Help us to stand in these evil days. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, see you guys Friday night. If you can make it out, 6 o'clock for game night. Bring some games and snacks to share. And if you can't make it Friday night, Nana Nana Boo Boo, we'll see you Sunday, all right?